Amen. So in our passage this morning, we have something of a vision for church ministry or mission. Now, I'm using mission here in the broadest sense, not merely evangelism, but worship and discipleship and the work of mercy. All that the church does can be summed up as its mission. And here, in the apostles' words, we are given the basic, basic shape of our mission. So it might be helpful to cast this message as a refresher course, where the basics are trotted out once again and restored to their proper place. So either today is going to be a reminder for you, bringing to the fore things that have slipped into the background, or orientation, learning these things for the first time. Now, regardless whether it's one or the other, this sort of thing, um, a refresher course, a reminder is necessary. In the business world, there's something called mission drift. And mission drift is what happens when an organization loses sight of its original goal. So it starts out as one thing, right? It, designed to serve some sort, some sort of purpose. And over time, it deteriorates into another thing. And of course, churches too are vulnerable to this dynamic, straying from our God-given purpose. Now, it comes in many forms, right? It can be being co-opted by some political agenda or overtaken by some ideological stance or simply majoring in the minors. In scriptural terms, Ephesians chapter 4, it's called simply being tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Mission drift, you lose focus, you stop doing what you've been called to do. And this degeneration happens rather naturally if we're not continually dialing in our sights, right? tuning the instruments. Hence, the Apostle Paul says, to underscore the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. To be reminded of the very basics is necessary. So in that spirit, we're going to take a refresher course on the church's mission what we are aiming at, what we should be trying to do, and how we can accomplish it. So let's take a stab at that first element, what we are aiming at. If we're to avoid mission drift, we need to be in agreement first on what our mission is, what we are doing as a church. So our passage, as you've noticed, has a strong autobiographical element to it. Paul, remember, had never met the Colossians. He writes to them, to them as those who have not personally seen his face. Hence, what he does here in this passage, introducing himself to them, is inviting the Colossians into his world. He shows them his missionary work, and more importantly, how it benefits them. Now, he has the authority to say, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, listen to me. But instead, he gains their respect. He gains a hearing with them by demonstrating his servant leadership on their behalf. So we have then in this autobiographical digression a glimpse 
into how Paul understood his mission. How he understood what he was commissioned to do and, and, and what Christ is up to in the world. So that sets the tone for the rest of us. So he begins, verse 25. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. So Paul calls his commission a stewardship from God. It's a compound word in the Greek. Oikos meaning house and namas meaning law. Oikonomia is the word. And it essentially refers to overseeing a household. Hence the translation that we have here, steward. Now a steward is someone who manages or organizes a property. And what it pictures is God's providence over human history. He's running the house, so to speak. So stewardship, as it's used here, simply refers to God's plan for creation. It refers to what he's up to in the world. So here, in another passage, we pick things up in the middle of a run-on sentence. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He says, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan, there's our word, oikonomia, for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So God's stewardship, or his household management, in other words, is his master plan for all creation. He is the supreme steward who orchestrates all things according to his plan. And the apostles and the rest of us too are under stewards, given our part to play in his work. So God is the builder and the owner. And church members, we are his servants, dispatched to oversee his purposes in his household. In one of his parables, Jesus says something to the same effect by providing us with the image of a vineyard. He owns the vineyard, and he hires us out to take care of the day-to-day winemaking business. We're working on his property. So we spoke about mission drift. Now here is our first defense against it. We are not owners, but stewards. We're hired out to work someone else's project. What is important for us in our mission is not innovation, but faithfulness. What matters are not the causes and programs that we can get caught up in, but our stewardship from God. Right? There's room only for one captain, and we're not qualified for the job. He charts the course, and he sends out the orders. We man the sails, and we do his bidding. So here is the first and most important aspect of our mission. It's God's mission. We're invited to participate in what he is already doing in the world. And again, that's what it means to be the body of Christ. The church is essentially an extension of Christ's presence in the world. Prior to his departure from the world, 
when he would ascend back to the Father, Christ passed along his mission to his church. He said, John chapter 20, As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So faithfulness to God's mission is the beginning of our mission. That's what matters for us. But what exactly is God's mission? In order for us to be diligent under stewards, we need to know what the supreme steward is up to. Sincerity is good, but it's not enough. We need understanding. So the question is, where is God leading his household? What does his plan ultimately end in? And here the apostle, he reterms God's plan. And he calls it this time, the mystery. He continues, verse 26. That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So God's master plan is a mystery, the apostle says. Once hidden, but now revealed. In past ages and generations, it was anticipated by holy men and prophets in obscure messages and symbolic visions. But now, it has been made clear. God's plan has been stated in plain language. As the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, the mystery, which in other generations was not made known, has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. So, in other words, we are incredibly privileged. We get to know what God is up to in the world. Now, that's not a right, but a gift. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples as they returned from their mission. Luke chapter 10, he says, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things you see and did not see them, and to hear the things that you hear and did not hear them. So to us, here at the end of the age, to us this mystery has been revealed. And it consists in two parts. The first is the inclusion of, of all the nations into God's plan. Again, the apostle says, God willed to make known this mystery among the Gentiles, or in other words, among the nations. So God's plan, what was revealed, is that God's plan is universal in scale, right? Not merely for the people of Israel, but everyone, every nation. Once hidden, but now revealed, is that God intended from the beginning to make one people in Christ, to break down the barrier that existed between Jew and Gentile, making one new man, Ephesians chapter 2, and establishing peace. After his resurrection, Christ is speaking to his disciples, and what he tells them is that this is what the scriptures had been saying all along from the very beginning. Luke chapter 24, verses 45 through 46. 
Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in beginning from Jerusalem. So the mystery that has now been revealed is about God's purpose for all humanity, to bring all nations together into one household. But it is also this mystery, even more so, about God's purpose for Christ. This is the second aspect of the mystery. Again, uh, our, our passage, Colossians 2, 2, he says, God's mystery is Christ himself. God's mystery is Christ himself. So, once hidden, but now revealed, is that God intended from the beginning for Christ to be the head over all creation. We're going here back to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. What the kings and the prophets longed to see, what they longed to hear but they could not, was that God placed Jesus Christ at the heart of all things. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is the firstborn of all creation and the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself would come to have the first place in everything. But even that is to say too little about this mystery. Again, it says, God willed to make known the riches of this mystery, which is, he says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is the mystery, but also this other aspect, Christ in you. So it's not merely that God had planned for Christ to rule over humanity in all creation, but even more radical, to be united to humanity and all creation. In other words, the relationship that God has purposed with his creation is not one primarily of subject, of ruler to his subjects, but more profoundly intimate, right? That he would be united with his creation through Christ and through the human race. In reality, this says less about us and more about Christ. This mystery, what's revealed to us, is that God wants everything in heaven and earth to be an extension of Christ, to be conformed to his image, to share in his likeness. It's as if Jesus Christ is so pleasing to God, right? so delighting to him, that he desires to see him in everything, everywhere. In another place, the Apostle Paul gives us the image of putting on Christ. God's plan will be complete when the entire creation is draped in Christ, so to speak, clothed in his glory and righteousness. So the mystery is simply this, as we'll find later on in Colossians, that Christ would be all in all. This is God's plan, that Christ would be all in all. Hence, we can come now to our mission. Verse 28, we proclaim him, that's Jesus, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. 
So here is that consistency that we spoke about. Our mission is God's mission. We're hired out to work in his household. So, as we see in our verse, God's mission and Paul's mission are the same. And that is to bring the human race to resemble Christ. The Apostle Paul has set across the Roman Empire, preaching and teaching, planting churches and enduring hardship for this one aim. As he says, to present every man complete in Christ. This is the Apostle Paul's mission. And the word that he uses there, to present every man complete in Christ, maybe in your translation, mature or perfect, simply means end. Simply means end, the word in Greek. And it refers to the reason or the purpose for which something was created. Of course, it's end. So the end of a watch is to tell time. The end of eyeglasses is to aid our vision. And the end of humanity is to be made into the image of Christ, to become like him. As the, again, Apostle Paul says, that we may present every man complete in Christ. Hence, Romans chapter eight twenty nine, he, that's God, predestined us to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that we, he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So God's purpose, whether you want to call it his stewardship or his mystery, is for every person to be reshaped into the image of Christ. Now, that's, that's his plan. It's up to them if they cooperate. It's as if we are this formless, formless and tarnished chunk of raw metal, and Christ is the mold. God melts us down, and he cleans us up, and he pours us into Christ so that we come to take his shape. In the end, everything that the apostle does is aimed toward this to present every man complete in Christ. In Galatians, another one of the Apostle Paul's letters, he uses an even more striking image. He compares his work to a mother giving birth. Pretty bold for a man, but he says, Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, My children, speaking to this church, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Here, the process of Christian maturity is likened to the nine months of gestation, from conception to birth. Christ is planted in us, so to speak, and we are carrying him to maturity till he is formed in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory, as our passage says. Now, I'm not sure if you um, have picked up on this, but you often hear people saying something like, um, I'm trying to be the best version of myself, right? So they're at the gym, they snap a selfie and say, trying to be the best version of myself. Reading a book, best version of myself, whatever. And that's a good thing, right? We want to support people trying to better themselves, to become the best version of themselves. But that's not exactly the Christian message. That's not how we think of sanctification. It's not that I'm trying to become a better me or that you are trying to become a better you, We're not trying to be highly successful people, super-powered versions of ourselves. It's about 
rather, this Christian message of sanctification, quite literally becoming another person, becoming Christ. The best version of ourselves is Christ. We've been predestined to be conformed to His image. Paul says, I'm at labor until Christ is formed in you. Ephesians chapter 4, the whole church is growing up into the image of the mature man who is the head, Christ himself. Again, it's not that we are trying to better ourselves, be a better me, but more radical, way more radical, that we are literally being shaped into the image of Christ. And not just even shaped to him into his image, but joined to him by the Spirit. So God points to Jesus and he says, This is what every person should become. This is God's plan for the world. Everybody to be formed into the image of Christ. So if we wanted to boil down our mission in the world to its irreducible minimum, I would say it's this. We are laboring in whatever we do to see every person conformed to Christ's image. That's what it's all about. Christ in all and as all. The great C.S. Lewis, he put it this way in Mere Christianity. He, that's Jesus, came into this world to become a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life that he has. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. This is what God is up to in the world. And what Lewis describes here is what the church fathers call the great exchange. Christ becomes like us so that we can become like him. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So God's purpose and the church's mission radiate from this central thing. For every person to become a little Christ, so to speak. And of course that can sound scary like we're losing our individuality, this, that, and the other. But of course, what adventure, adventure is not, does not have that element. There's always fear and risk involved, but the destination is worth it, to be made into the image of Christ. And again, he says to us, as he said to his disciples the first time he called them, it's very simple, come, follow me. And what that entails is literally becoming like him sharing in his glory. And again, here is what it means for us then to be under stewards in God's household. Whatever we do, right, in whatever role that we occupy, it's supposed to be aimed toward this, to present every man complete in Christ. So as a church, that's our end. That's our goal. As elders and deacons, as parents and spouses, as friends or as enemies, the goal remains the same, to present every man complete in Christ. It is God's mission in the world, and so it is also ours, to be completed on that last day when it can finally be said in truth that Christ is all in all. There's our mission. That is what God is doing in the world. Now, That leads us to the second element of the church's mission. Not so much its aim, right? That's what we've been talking about, the goal of what we're doing. But its means, how we're accomplishing that. 
So back to verse 25. Again, look at what the Apostle Paul says. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. So Paul describes himself as a minister. I'm not sure what that word conjures up in your minds, but all it is in the Greek is the word diakonos, and it, and it just means servant. A minister is a servant. So in other words, Paul understands his under-stewardship to be simultaneously about servanthood. He is a slave of God and a servant of the church. He was appointed to this position, called by Jesus Christ himself, not that he might use his authority to benefit himself, but the church. He's a minister, a servant of the church. And that's the long and short of all church leadership. It's always to be used for the good of the other, for the benefit of the body of Christ. And again, Paul seems very anxious to underscore this very thing. Time and again, he emphasizes that what he does, he does for the church. I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, verse 24. I was made a minister for your benefit, verse 25. I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, chapter 2, verse 1. Even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, chapter 2, verse 5. So Paul wants to make clear that though he has never met the Colossians, he nevertheless has served them. That he nevertheless has been laboring for them. Here then is our second aspect of our mission. It is ministerial. It is servanthood for the good of one another. God has made each one of us servants in his household for the purpose of caring and tending to one another. Remember, what is the goal? Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is the goal? That Christ would be formed in you. Now this happens no other way but through one another, through this servanthood. That is how Christ is formed in us. And as I said, this is a refresher course. There's nothing more basic, yet nothing more important. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, the Apostle Paul says, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look out only for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Now, this servanthood is the lesson we learn from our Master, Jesus Christ. In Philippians, the Apostle Paul describes his protege and ministry partner, Timothy, this way. He says, Philippians 2, verses 20 through 21, he, he says, For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. He says this, For they all seek after their own interests, not the interests of Christ Jesus. So the two, master and apprentice, share a kindred spirit, the Apostle Paul says. And that is to be genuinely concerned for your welfare, referring to the church. 
And this is a rare thing. He says, because I have no one else, for they all seek after their own interests. Instead, a servant, a minister, not even in the proper sense of the term as an official office, but anybody, is to seek after the interests of their master. And in this case, what are the master's interests? What is it that Jesus Christ is after? The church's welfare. He loves it as his bride and his body, giving himself over for his people. So in order to accomplish our mission, that Christ would be formed in each and every person, we must go outside of ourselves and learn to look beyond simply what we want. The mission moves forward in servanthood. Without it, sacrifice. Without it, giving up what I want. Without it, inconveniencing myself. There is no progress. The mission stalls out, and it dies. And the servanthood that we're called to is no easy business. Again, look at Paul's description of the ministry versus, well, they're up there. For this purpose also I labor. I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have had on your behalf and those who are at Laodicea and all those who have not personally seen my face. Labor, striving, struggle. These are the words that describe what genuine servanthood is like. In Greek, these are words that come from the athletic world. Labor, striving. They refer to what you'd find at the Olympic Games. I've been running lately, training for a half marathon, and it's a guided course. I have a coach that speaks to me throughout the run. And a couple days ago, right at the hardest part of the run, he said to run for someone who inspires you. And of course, with this passage bouncing around my mind, I immediately thought of the Apostle Paul, laboring, striving, struggling for his mission, who says this in 1 Corinthians 9, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. He says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? but only one receives the prize. He then says, run in such a way that you may win. Run in such a way that you may win. Serve in such a way that you may win. Now, many, I know, are already in this place. Labor, striving, and struggle describe your everyday life. So to you, the the only word is to continue. To, to not grow weary in doing good. The scripture encourages us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Now to the rest, right? Those who maybe these words don't characterize our mission, our ministry in life. To the rest, the exhortation is simple. It's, it's to get in the game. Again, the mission of God in the world stalls out on comfortability and ease. 
It stalls out when we evade sacrifice, when we evade hard work. Now, God will certainly accomplish his purposes in the world with or without us, but he invites us. He invites you to share in his servanthood. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So here, the summons that God makes upon us is clear. To imitate Christ. It's his image that we are being transformed into. And in our transformation, the mission moves forward. We are called to be God's servants in God's household. And the definition of servanthood is Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. The mission dies when we turn in upon ourselves. It revives when we turn outward toward Christ and others. And at the last, we'll end here. The church's mission is sacrificial. Now, this is not so much a new point as it is an extension and amplification of the last one. The pinnacle expression of servanthood is suffering for those who you have been appointed to care for. I'll say that again. The pinnacle expression of servanthood is suffering for those whom you've been appointed to care for. Again, here are the apostles' words now in verse 24. I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Now that first statement is not so radical. The second one is. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And here Paul refers to his current location, his diligent service for the church and for the sake of the gospel have wound him up in prison. Where I am, Christ says, there my servant will be also. So we'd be wrong to think that because Christ suffered, we are exempt from it. It's just the opposite. To carry on Christ's work is to accept his fate. It's to be where he is. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That statement cuts both ways. But the more radical statement is the second statement. He says, I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So from the outset, let's be clear. Paul is not referring to Christ's atoning death. Rather, that which is lacking here is in reference to the church's mission. I agree with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who says the following. Even though Jesus Christ has already accomplished all the vicarious suffering necessary for our redemption, his sufferings in this world are not finished yet. In his grace, he has left something unfinished in his suffering, which his church community is to complete in the last period before his second coming. So Christ's afflictions are the church's afflictions as it carries out its mission to the end of the age. Now, how can this be? How can our afflictions be Christ's? Well, the answer is simple. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ the head, 
lives through his body, the church. He remains distinct from us, yet there is not a hard line of division. And of course, the one who wrote these words experienced this very thing firsthand. Saul, whose whose name would later be changed to Paul, persecuted the church, dragging them from their homes and throwing them into prison. And And as he was on the road from Damascus down to Jerusalem to do this very thing, to imprison Christians, he met the risen Lord. Christ confronted him and knocked him off his horse, and all he saw was a bright light, and he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The head speaking in place of the body. Hence, our mission, it's Christ's mission, carried out through us and in us by his Spirit. So as we bear the gospel forward, and pay the price for it, Christ suffers with us. Our suffering is as much His as it is ours. And Christ's afflictions are being brought to completion throughout the world, even as we sit here, even as I speak. With each act of undressed treatment around the world, with each act of unfair defamation of character, with each act of persecution For his name, what is lacking is being filled up. The mission is moving forward. So in your afflictions, in your suffering for the sake of the mission, do not be disheartened because Christ is with you, suffering with you. As the scripture says, we suffer with him, Romans chapter 8, so that we will also be glorified with him. We follow the same path as Jesus Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So I want to invite you now to prepare your hearts for communion. We've been talking so much about this unity with Christ. And the Lord's Supper is nothing other than the enactment of that unity. Where we join together as one body with one head and we partake of this meal together. So prepare your hearts now and I will lead us in celebration in just a moment. Come receive the elements.